from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 77. We're going to be continuing with our sports medicine-themed series of episodes here. We've got an awesome orthopedic surgeon on as our guest, and what I really like about him is that he's not just a guy who's seeing patients and, and doing surgeries, but in reality, he's actually very involved on the research side of things on a number of fronts. One, to help prevent injuries. Two, to really help track and classify injuries and understand return to play timelines and how to make people more successful after they do get hurt. Um, and I think also he's he's a teacher, so he's doing a good job of trying to figure out better surgical techniques and ways to impact the next generation of sports medicine professionals. So this is a really good episode, and, and what I like about it also is that you know it's a good opportunity to kind of like meet in the middle between the strength conditioning world and the sports medicine world. So we had some good dialogue here, and I actually learned a lot as we took uh, you know this this deep dive into his world, and I think you will too. Overuse injuries have emerged as one of the biggest threats to players at every level of competition. As an example, at the professional level, ulnar collateral ligament injuries at the elbow alone sideline pitchers for an average of over 17 months. That's a ton of lost development and a threat to lengthy careers. Just as concerningly though, for youth players, overuse is the predominant mechanism of injury. So what can be done? Obviously, we need to train athletes to be prepared for all the stresses the game throws at them. However, the other side of the equation, recovery, often doesn't get the attention it deserves. Healthy, recovered arms mean you can stay in the game and give your best on the field, and that's where Mark Pro comes in. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge recovery tool that provides all the benefits of active recovery, but without the extra effort, muscular fatigue, or stress to tendons and joints. Players can use Mark Pro as long as needed for exceptional recovery between training sessions or after games. We'll often send Mark Pro units back with athletes to their hotels or even have them use them on team flights. Both easy to use and portable, Mark Pro is a powerful tool that allows recovery anywhere, anytime. Use it while relaxing at home, on the road, or during tournaments. On a personal note, I was originally a naysayer when it came to Mark Pro. However, longtime Cressy Sports Performance athlete Corey Kluber turned me on to it. He adopted Mark Pro into his post-pitching recovery approach, and it was an integral part of him going out and throwing 200 innings year after year. This led me to experiment with it myself and with more of our athletes, and the feedback was consistently outstanding. Now, just a few years later, you'll see it in every major league organization as part of the routines of some of the most accomplished baseball players on the planet. If you're looking for the same results enjoyed by these athletes, visit markpro.com and use the coupon code CRESSY at checkout for an exclusive discount. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive discount. Today's guest completed his undergraduate studies at Lee University and then went to medical school and his orthopedic surgery residency at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. He subsequently completed a fellowship in research and clinical orthopedic surgery sports medicine at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He returned to the Mayo Clinic to serve as orthopedic surgeon and assistant professor of orthopedics. In 2019, he was named medical director, team physician, and director of high performance for the Minnesota Twins. 
He conducts clinical and basic science research on injuries of the shoulder, elbow, and knee. And he studies biomechanics of the throwing motion, injuries in overhead throwing athletes, and epidemiology of injuries in professional baseball and other sports-related injuries. Many of his research efforts focus on injury prevention, improving surgical techniques, and optimizing return to play times. If you head to PubMed right now, you'll actually find his name as the lead author or co-author on 169 scholarly journal publications. So he's a very prolific researcher and a great clinician. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Christopher Camp. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Really appreciate it. That's what I'm excited to do this. I have followed uh, your work from afar um, in the research realm, but I also know you're a, you're a day-to-day clinician who sees a lot of overhead athletes on a regular basis. So we're excited to delve into both the research background and the, and the clinical expertise. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of start there. I think um, one of the things I would say is we have a, a, a broad collection of folks that listen to this podcast, right? We have you know, basically the, the parents and kids that listen to it on the way to the games. We have the coaches that listen to it, but we also have a really strong, uh, you know, collection of sports medicine professionals ranging from strength addition coaches up to athletic trainers and PTs and, and even, you know, orthos that, that have kind of checked in on this. So I want to make sure that we have something for the sports medicine crew. And I think a good place to start is maybe in, in respect to the injury reporting research that you've done. So we've had Stan Connie on the podcast recently, and I know you guys have collaborated some. Um, and your work at times has been in the same vein, reporting on what's happening with injuries that we're seeing in the baseball community, you know, at the MLB level, but also younger. So I'm curious, starting on that front, what trends are you seeing at the professional levels that you feel might be concerning? Where are we headed? Yeah, yeah. Great, great question, Eric. And and yeah, you're right. I know Stan well, and he and I have worked together and collaborated quite a bit. And for, before I answer this question, one of the things I'll say is, one of the things that I think we have gotten significantly better at in the last few years is tracking injuries. You know, we have much better systems now for recording and reporting injuries than what we had even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we feel like our data and information is much more reliable. And and having this over the last few years has really allowed us to take a deep dive into some of these injuries and trends. One of the things that we've seen um, in, in the last probably 10 to 15 years is that there, there is some good news. Shoulder injuries in pitchers are actually on the decline, which is good. It's, it's not a dramatic decline, but there is a slight decline for that. So, so that's good news. The, the bad news is that that is being met with a reciprocal increase in elbow injuries. Mm-hmm. So the elbow is getting a lot of the tension recently and, and rightfully so. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the big one for the elbow that, w- that we all talk about and worry about is the Tommy John injury, which is a, a rupture of the medial ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow. And so that's that's one of the ones that gets a lot of press, a lot of publicity, uh, and a lot of our attention. Mm-hmm. Now, surprisingly, it is not the most common injury in professional baseball. Mm-hmm. In fact, when, when we looked at it, we did, we did a study looking at about 50,000 injuries in professional baseball, and it came out as number five or number six on the most common injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it is the one that ends up resulting in the most time out of play since the vast majority of them end up requiring surgery at the professional level. So that's why, that's why it gets a lot of attention. It's not necessarily because it's the most common, but, but when it happens, it can potentially be devastating. So a couple of the trends that we've noticed with that one, specifically one is that we initially, when we, we reviewed sort of all the Tommy John injuries that have happened. Uh, since mid-70s when Tommy John had his first one all the way up until the year 2018. 
we we found that within the last three to four years, the number of Tommy John injuries in Major League Baseball players is actually decreasing. So that was great. We were excited, very, very happy to see that. Unfortunately, when we looked at the minor league saw, side, we saw that it was increasing dramatically at the, in the minor league side. So although we initially were optimistic and thought, well, maybe we're actually making a dent in this and we're reducing injuries, it turns out we're not really reducing the injuries. They're just shifting to, to younger players. Mm-hmm. So now what we're seeing is the, the injuries are continuing to rise and they're happening more commonly in younger players and minor leaguers rather than the older major leaguers. That's an interesting observation and, and definitely something, you know, I think clinically that, that aligns with what we're seeing anecdotally. And actually, as you went through that, two questions popped in my mind. So we had uh, Dr. Chris Ahmad on previously, and one of the things that we mm-hmm. touched on was that um, a lot of these younger guys who at 21, 22, you know, as they're getting their minor league careers going, who are, you know, injuring their UCL, a lot of those guys are going into surgery and, you know, they're presenting as, as guys who previously had lower grade injuries that maybe calcified over and then those injuries reach threshold. Is that, is that something that you're seeing when, when you see a 23 year old minor leaguer that comes in, are those ligaments dinged up previously before you actually do that UCL reconstruction? It's it's a mix, to be honest with you, Eric. So we, we see some that come in had, having been previously healthy and then all of a sudden have an acute injury that's new. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like Dr. Ahmad said, more commonly we are seeing um, injuries that have had some chronic attrition or degeneration over the years. Mm-hmm. And and the, the athlete was sort of able to compensate, able to keep up, and then eventually they reached a point where they just couldn't keep up anymore in the, in the ligament fully fully ruptured or tore so yeah i I agree completely we're certainly seeing that i think we're we're realizing it as an industry like we kind of need to slow cook our teenage pitchers you know we don't need to chase 95 at age 14 but if it happens at 18 after a steady linear progression over the course of years they seem to do better long term um Mm -hmm. the the second side of that you mentioned fewer shoulder surgeries so what i'm curious about is you know are we seeing fewer shoulder surgeries at these highest levels because we're realizing that it's a lot harder to come back to from shoulder surgeries than maybe we did 10 mm-hmm. years ago. And so we're recommending them less, or do you think it has actually something to do with the, you know, the, the care that they're receiving from a proactive sports medicine standpoint? Yeah. Fortunately, I actually think it's the latter. I, I think yeah. it is more the injury prevention measures because even in the, in the data that we looked at that I was quoting is not just looking at surgeries, but it's looking at actual injuries. So, yes, you're right. Shoulder injuries are less commonly getting surgery because the outcomes are not great. But we are also seeing slightly lower numbers of shoulder injuries in and of themselves. And I think that's probably because if if you look back um, within the last probably 15 years or so, there's been a real increased emphasis on scapular mechanics and scapular stabilization and uh, those types of things, which I think is sort of the the link in the chain before the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And and I think we we've had a lot of focus on that area. And and I, you got to wonder if maybe us improving that and focusing on that and developing good shoulder stabilization programs for these guys has maybe helped a little bit with the shoulder. Now we just need to sort of transfer that same thing down, down to the elbow. if We can. Do you think um, when we're doing these, you know, these evaluations of a shoulder from an injury, I guess, counting standpoint, are we mixing the thoracic outlet cases, the lat strains in there? Are we talking purely glenohumeral joint? How do you how do you kind of define the scope of that that collection of data? Yeah, so we've looked at it in several ways. So if we lump them all together, it is it is going down. 
But yes, if we look specifically at different types of injuries, you you will see some noise in there where yeah. some of the specific shoulder injuries are going up, some of them are going down. Overall, the average is is trending down slightly. Again, it's not dramatic, but it, it's it's slight. Um, but if you look at specific injuries, you may see some changes. And thoracic outlet has certainly been one of them that has been increasing, which I think is probably more re- related to our understanding of it. We, yeah. we, we've started to understand it and identify it more commonly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine if we look back probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, there were some guys that had it and we didn't really understand exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was much harder to make that diagnosis then than it is now. Absolutely. So, so switching gears or maybe progressing gears a little bit, what about the youth levels? Do you feel that mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're making progress. Obviously, we've seen nationwide pitch counts, um, you know, integrated uh, in all states. You know, we've seen more outreach to the youth communities with respect to arm care programs to kind of offset the, you know, the, the outreach in terms of really aggressive throwing programs early. Are we making progress or do you think the trends are still headed in the wrong direction from the youth sports standpoint? Yeah. You know, I, I th- if we look at all of the sort of the epidemiologic studies, and, and again, I have, I have to admit, we, we don't have as good of data on the on our youth yeah. players as we do the professional athletes, yeah. obviously, just because, you know, the, um, there's so many of them and they're spread out. It's harder to keep track of. The few epidemiologic studies we do have on youth players actually suggest that their rates of injuries are growing faster yeah. than the professional athletes. Which, which is unfortunate, but there, there is, uh, on a, so that's sort of the negative on, on the brighter, more optimistic side, there is some good evidence showing that, um, players, parents, and coaches are becoming more aware of this. They're becoming more aware of the, of the value and the importance of pitch counts. Mm-hmm. Um, there are compliance issues, certainly. Um, but it does seem to be improving slightly. And then there's also been some studies that have shown that, arm care programs for youth athletes reduce injury rates. And so we have some good evidence to support some of the things that we've suspected. Now we just have to continue to work hard to get that message out and try to roll it out uh, to the masses, which, which is very difficult to do. I think the other thing that's, that's great about that message is you, you know, I think there's this, there's assumption, unfortunately, in the, you know, in the training community that, uh, you know, training for health and training for, for, performance are, are mutually exclusive things. And I think those, mm-hmm. we have research that also shows that those arm care programs don't just help keep kids healthy. In many cases, they add velocity. You know, you're, you're teaching somebody right. more efficiently to transfer forces. And um, I think as, a, as an industry, people like to sell out for the sexiest training approach, right? They, they mm-hmm. want to get on the aggressive throwing program when sometimes it's, you know, get in the weight room, get strong in the right places, work on single leg balance, get your arm care where it needs to be, throw the med ball. There are all these other ways from a maybe a slightly less specific standpoint that we can grow, you know, general athlete uh, potential before we really sell out for those specific initiatives. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I think that is probably we, we have to sort of capitalize on that fact that, yes, not only can these programs make you healthier and increase the length of your career, reduce your injury risk, but they can also make you better. Yeah. Um, and, and the issue is, and we've seen this, Eric, with ACL prevention programs. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that if athletes, and this is most common sort of in soccer, basketball players where ACL injuries are very common. If athletes will do an ACL prevention program, it can reduce the rates of ACL injuries by up to 50% in some populations and even 70, 75 in some of the highest risk populations, which is pretty dramatic. Oh, no doubt. And what, what we've seen in years past is that we can show that data to let's say a high school soccer team, we can show them that data and, and, they, and it resonates with them because they, they've they've had a couple of players that have had ACL injuries the last few years, so, so it hits home. So they'll buy into the program, do it for a few years, 
number of ACL injuries drops. And then all of a sudden it sort of loses that momentum or sting because they think, well, why are we doing this program? We haven't really had any injuries. Are we wasting our time? Yeah. And then they, they stop doing it. The ACL injuries come back. Then they're motivated again to do it. So we, we sort of have this, you know, up and down effect of the of these things. So it's really hard to sell these programs yeah. if you do it purely on the basis of injury prevention. So I, I agree with you. I think one of the keys is we have to let people know, yes, it'll reduce your injury. It can also increase your career length and make you a better athlete and a better thrower. No I think that's that. really important in the messaging. No doubt. And, and so I'm, I'm actually intrigued. Maybe this is more of like a, a personal reflection for you. I'll never forget the first time I saw a 12 year old walk in with a UCL tear and you're, you know, the, the referring, you know, physician didn't want to do surgery because there were still open growth plates. It was too early on. Are you actually seeing that young athletes that are coming your way or they're effectively outpacing sports medicine's ability to keep up with them um, in terms of not just diagnosis, but more importantly, probably the treatment? Is that becoming an issue in your eyes? It, it is. And, and that's a that's sort of across all of youth sports. You know, that's not a yeah. baseball specific thing. We're, we're seeing that uh, with multiple injuries, shoulder dislocations, ACL tears, um, Tommy John injuries, cartilage injuries, all of those sort of things. And th these are happening in younger and younger athletes, um, which is, is a very concerning trend. That is. Um, so we'll, we'll dig in on elbows a little bit further. Some of your research has reported on, on different methods for UCL reconstruction. Um, in terms of both surgical approach, uh, the graft site utilized, whether or not to do an ulnar nerve uh, transposition uh, concurrently, you know, what lessons have you learned in your research that you can share for, hey, there's a, there's a kid that's on this line right now who's 19 years old, who's a week out from Tommy John surgery, and he's trying to pick his, his surgeon. What are some of the things that you've learned? Yeah, I, I love this question, Eric. And this, this is one of the things that sort of keeps me up at night uh, mm -hmm. thinking about. And just to give you some background on sort of why I'm interested in this, mm -hmm. if, if we think about, you know, the ulnar, medial ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow is a relatively small ligament mm -hmm. compared to the rest of the ligaments in our body. We reconstruct this and it often, on average, takes a pitcher 12 to 16 months to get back to their, their previous level of play and their previous form. Let's contrast that to a multi-ligament knee injury in an NFL player. So there was a great study that was published in Sports Health looking at NFL players who tore at least two and up to three or four ligaments in their knee. Had them reconstructed. Their average return to play to football was less than a year. And some were getting back in as fast as nine months. And, and I, I, I have to stop and think, wow, if a, and if a football player can get back to football after a multiple ligament knee injury in less than you know nine to 12 months, why is it taking us so long to get some of these guys back after UCL reconstruction? And I think there's there are several reasons. One of them is obviously we, we have to optimize the rehab program, which is one avenue of interest of mine, which a lot of work has been done. But the other is the surgical technique. And generally speaking, across the rest of the, bo the human body, when we have tried to develop techniques for repairing or reconstructing ligaments, mm -hmm. we have found that generally they do best when we design a reconstruction that tries to mimic the normal anatomy. Mm -hmm. So right now, the most common techniques that we use for Tommy John reconstruction they partially mimic the normal anatomy, but they do change the biomechanics of the elbow slightly. And so in my personal opinion is I think that we still have some room for improvement 
uh, in the surgical technique. And so we, we've got a technique that we've been working on that's a more anatomic approach. It's still in the early stages, but has shown some very promising um, improvement in recovery um, and allowing pitchers to get back a little bit sooner. So uh, there are still some things and tweaks that we that we want to be doing, and, and it's going to it involves things like changing the the graft construct, so how we fix it to the bone, where we fix it to the bone, augmenting the reconstruction using either suture tape or internal brace. Uh, people have heard a lot about that. Yeah. Um, adding biologic agents, whether it be stem cells, PRP, those types of things to, to speed up healing. Mm-hmm. And then also having a good idea of which ligaments can be repaired versus reconstructed. Yep. And just, just for the audience, you know, the, the difference there for us. So a repair is when you keep the ligament, you just sew it back down. A reconstruction is when you put a new ligament in. And generally speaking, the repairs for for players that are eligible for the repair tend to get back a, a little bit quicker. They're, they're usually on that sort of six to nine month range, whereas the reconstructions typically take a year or longer. So obviously, if somebody is a candidate for a repair, it would be best if we could do that repair on them because that, that may save them three to six months. So we still we're working on sort of fine tuning who, who uh, is an appropriate candidate for which procedure as well. Do you think, um, you know, some of the differences between ACL and UCL, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's anatomical, right? Your knee is a, a larger joint than an elbow. Mm-hmm. Like, do you mm-hmm. think part of the concerns with like specifically replicating the, the normal anatomy is just that that medial epicondyle is, is so much smaller than what you're dealing with at the knee? Like, I know there's always concerns yes. about medial epicondyle fractures coming back and you'll see those here and there on, on post-op Tommy Johns, you, you very rarely hear about that stuff with an ACL, correct? Correct. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's because, yeah, on the knee, you get the femur and the tibia, which are both huge bones, mm-hmm. which open up a lot of different options for fixation methods. Yep. So we use different types of screws, buttons. We have all of these options available to us just because the bones are so large and it's much, it's very easy to work with. In the elbow, it's much smaller. You have a lot less real estate to try to fix these grafts down to the bone. But fortunately, our, our technology has advanced too. So, so we have some anchors that are in, in different fixation methods that are available to us now that weren't available to us five years ago. And I think that this is, this is sort of caused me to rethink how we do this and has allowed us to innovate a little bit in this space and, and find better methods of fixation that require less bone removal and could, and could potentially speed up the recovery process. So I, I'm in the next few years, I think that we will see that uh, going forward. That's awesome. And I think it's also going to require a, a rehabilitation calibration where if we feel like the surgery is better and it's more efficient, do we have to recalibrate all the physical therapists and ATCs that have rehabbed these over the years to realize that maybe you can move people quicker than you, you previously have? Um, I'm, I'm curious, do you see the lo- – I mean, I know with the ACL research, we know that replacement ACLs tend to be better than the native ACLs, you know, long-term, particularly would combine mm-hmm. with a with a great rehabilitation program. We don't see that with the with the ulnar collateral ligament right now. The native one is, is always going to be better. Do you see the day coming when these surgical advances actually make – because we often hear about, like, the, the parents that come and ask, hey, give my kid Tommy John so he can throw harder. Do we actually see a scenario where we could see a replacement UCL being stronger than a native one? Um, but potentially, so r- right now we're, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So the, the native ulnar collateral ligament in isolation. So if you, if you just look at the ligament itself and you put it on a biomechanical machine and you stretch it 
until it ruptures. It, it can with, withstand up to, you know, on average, somewhere around 30 to 35 newtons of force um, before, before it breaks. Most, our most common reconstruction techniques that have been used in the last five to 10 years generally tolerate about 20 newtons of force. So they're clearly not quite as strong as yeah. the normal ligament, certainly better than a torn ligament, but not quite to where the native ligament is. But we've done one of the newer uh, constructs that we've developed. We have been able to test it in the lab and we were able to get that strength up to uh, 30 to 35 Newton meters, which which now approaches what the normal ligament is. So it's, we're still in the early stages of that research, but it's very encouraging and exciting. And I think it's going to have some significant implications for us over the next couple of years. Yeah. I think one of the, the things that's interesting when you, you look at a shoulder or a knee, both of those, I mean, if you, if you have a ligamentous injury at one of those joints, you have tons of, of soft tissue structures that cross the joint, right? At your shoulder, you've got more mm -hmm. than you can possibly count. There's, you know, 17 muscles that attach mm -hmm. to the scapula. In your knee, you've got, you know, multiple hamstrings, tendons that cross the joint. You've got plenty of, of active restraints. The elbow, elbow kind of gets hung out to dry a little bit more where you have a flexor tendon that crosses. Um, you know, you've, you've got some stuff that can help you out. Do you think that's ultimately a limiting factor is just that you don't have as many active restraints to, to protect the passive restraints at an elbow? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's really a ratio of the amount of force across the elbow compared to the restraints to that force. Mm -hmm. And in the elbow, we, we see that ratio is higher there than anywhere else in the body. And that's because, you know, with a max effort throw, the elbow regularly exceeds that 30 to 50 Newton meters that I spoke of earlier. Um, and so, yes, the ligament itself is not sufficient to keep the medial elbow stable. So it takes all the flexor pronators um, firing in an optimal fashion. It takes the bony congruity of the joint to provide some stability. So you really have to have all of those different systems functioning in an optimal state in order to maintain elbow stability. And there's really not much room for error like there is in the, in the shoulder and the knee. And that's why I think you, you can see these guys who just have a mild injury, maybe it's to the UCL or to the flexor pronator mass really struggle. It's because that, that is such a fine tuned system with such a small margin for error that if you, you introduced even the smallest amount of injury there, sort of the whole thing can kind of fall apart and, and it can be tough to rehabilitate and get it back to that optimal form. And I think on your end too, it can be tough to diagnose, right? If you have ulnar nerve symptoms, that could be because you have an insufficiency of the UCL, you have a, a flexor tendon that's balled up and nasty and you know your ulnar nerve goes right into that. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different variables you've got to consider. And, and actually that, that leads to my next question. So ulnar nerve, um, where, where's your head at with respect to transposing it with a Tommy John? Um, I know it's dependent on a lot of different factors. Um, right. Do you do it with everybody? Do you do it with some people? When do you utilize it? Yeah. Generally speaking for me, I try to leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Th there are certain surgical techniques that require you to transpose the ulnar nerve. Mm -hmm. I'm personally not a big fan of those. Mm -hmm. So for me, if somebody has no ulnar nerve symptoms whatsoever, I totally leave it alone. I don't expose it at the time of surgery. I know where it is. I protect it. I keep it safe. Mm -hmm. but I leave it alone. I think it, it's sort of one of those things, you know, it's sort of b best to let sleeping dogs lie. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, I think that's true in when it comes to nerves and surgery. Uh, so that, that's true all over the body and the shoulder and the knee and the hip and, and also in the elbow. So for me, if there's no symptoms, I leave it alone. However, if there are ulnar nerve symptoms for the vast majority of the population, those are very easily solved 
by just releasing. There's a little, there's a band of fascia that goes over the top of the ulnar nerve mm -hmm. that can be tight and constricted. Mm -hmm. It's very easy just to release that. It takes a tiny incision. It's a, it's a five minute surgery mm -hmm. that works for the vast majority of the population. That doesn't work that well for pitchers. And the problem is if you release that fascia for pitchers, they then can develop ulnar nerve instability. Yep. So, so then the nerve starts snapping back and forth over the medial side of the elbow and then their symptoms can actually get worse. So generally speaking, if you do ulnar nerve surgery for a pitcher, not only do you have to release it, but you also have to transpose it and move it up to the front of the elbow in a more secure position. So any, any time you are doing something with the ulnar nerve in a pitcher, by, by the very nature of the activity that they do, you have to do a slightly larger surgery than what you would do in somebody who doesn't try to throw a baseball. Mm -hmm. So for all of those reasons, I leave it alone unless, unless it's symptomatic. If they're having symptoms, then it's a no-brainer. And I know th sometimes we will see individuals who have ulnar nerve symptoms following a surgery, whether that's you know transient for mm -hmm. a while. Um, I'm curious, different approaches. You obviously mentioned that yours doesn't expose the nerve quite as much. Do you see a lower incidence of post-op ulnar nerve complications with that approach compared to you know others that are out there? Generally speaking, we do. So, so if, if you look at all over orthopedics and for the medial side of the elbow, if you leave the nerve alone, you're less likely to have issues with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so that, that's sort of the approach that I have taken, but, but that being said, you, you can certainly have, you know, somebody who has Tommy John surgery, you leave the nerve alone, they, they rehab, come back and throw for several years, do great. And then they develop ulnar nerve symptoms down the road. That is certainly always a possibility. That's probably less than a couple of percent mm -hmm. of, of pitchers that can have that, but it certainly can. And, and there are a, a lot of great pitchers out there, um, you know, a couple without naming any names, some Cy Young winners and some that are in contention for the Cy Young again this year who have had that happen. Had Tommy John, yep. came back, pitched um, incredibly well. A few years later, ulnar nerve symptoms, had the ulnar nerve addressed, came back, pitched incredibly well again. Nice. All right. So let's, we're going to backtrack. We're going to talk shoulders a little bit. Um, we hinted at, you know, you, you don't want a shoulder surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. And, and, you know, I think for a long time they've been viewed in a negative light when it comes to maybe long-term outcomes. Um, you know, I remember seeing some research on uh, like anterior capsule plications in 2012, where mm -hmm. like, you know, you're looking at over three years for a return to function if you're going to return at all. So you don't want to have one unless it's absolutely necessary. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I don't want to paint with a broad brush and lump all these different surgeries underneath, you know, the same umbrella, mm -hmm. but do you have any general guidelines you like to apply to, you know, chronic shoulder pain that yeah. you, you want before you, you consider a surgical intervention? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I try to keep it clean and have a, an algorithm in my mind that I use with players. And, and the first thing that I explained to them, um, there, there aren't any high level pitchers that have a normal shoulder. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, the throwing motion is not the most natural human motion, the overhead throwing motion. And so folks who do that a lot have some normal adaptation of the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And the, the most common things that we see are some increased external rotation, mm -hmm. decreased internal rotation. There usually is some slight lateralization of the rotator cuff footprint. So, so that means the sort of the edge of the rotator cuff gets just slowly kind of worn away and whittled away. Mm -hmm. And that creates more room for the pitcher to get up in that late cocking position. Yep. So that happens slowly over time. And then also a little bit of blunting of the superior labrum, which accomplishes the same thing. So all of those things are normal adaptations in a pitcher. 
So we know that if we get MRIs on asymptomatic pictures, they will have some, quote, abnormalities, end quote. Um, but the key is sort of deciphering which of those are normal adaptations and which of them are actually pathologic things that are causing them symptoms. So for, for all of those reasons, it's, it's a little bit dicey when you're, when you're talking about shoulder injuries and pictures. Now, things that make it more obvious is if you have an acute injury, you have an acute tear of, of a structure that's surrounded by bleeding and inflammation, that lets you know that that, that's something new that's happened. That's not a chronic adaptation. Um, and the, the other thing that's important to remember too, and I think one of the reasons that outcomes after shoulder surgery have not been as good as we would like is because when we repair things surgically, we tend to repair them like they are, like they were initially, you know, when, when somebody was born, we, we don't repair them to the level of normal adaptation that the picture has developed over years because we don't always know what that is. And I think that is the real reason that the outcomes of shoulder surgery have probably not been as good as what we would like. So we have to take all those things into consideration in the rare instances that we do consider surgery. So getting, getting back to my algorithm and my discussion that I have with, with pitchers who have new shoulder injuries, you know, I, I talked to them about trying to separate what's normal adaptation versus what I think is actual injury and pathology. We talk about all the non-operative options. We talk about optimizing their shoulder mechanics and, and then we work down the rest of the chain too. We talk about their, their scapula. We talk about their back and their hips and, and everything else trying to optimize all of that so that they transfer energy efficiently to see if we can we can sort of op optimize what happens when that force and energy gets to the shoulder. If we do all of that and they still are unable to get back to pitching, then I think uh, surgery may be appropriate. And so generally speaking, what I, what I tell pitchers is before we operate on your shoulder, I need you to tell me I cannot throw like I am right now. You know, my, my chance of getting back to college, high school, college baseball, professional baseball is 0%. I say, okay, well, in that case, we can do surgery. And, you know, depending on the surgery, the success rate is maybe 60 to 70%, just for instance. So, well, you know, I can take you from 0% to 60 to 70%, but it, but it's still not a guarantee. So that, that's sort of the discussion that I have. And so before we, we go into that surgery, we want to be absolutely sure that it is necessary and that there aren't any other options. And I think, too, it's also a discussion of timelines, right? You know, if you have a 17-year-old kid who might not plan to play baseball after his senior in high school, it's a different approach than if you mm -hmm. have a 26-year-old who still has a seven-year big league career ahead of him or something along those lines. So um, I'm curious about a couple of specific circumstances and what more, more selfishly for my own reasons, Bennett's lesions. Where, where is mm -hmm. your head at with those? Because we see them, I know there was one study that said we see them in about 40% of major league shoulders, but it's like anything else. They can be little, they can be big, and we sometimes, right. you know, don't know how to manage them. And I think, I think my classic experience with a Bennett's lesion that maybe has gone underdiagnosed is those are the guys that feel amazing long tossing out to about 180 feet. The second they get beyond that or they mm -hmm. get off a mound, you know, the external rotation increases and that speed bump, you know, kind of becomes mm -hmm. more of a problem. What's your general mm -hmm. approach when you see one of those on imaging? How do you attack it? Yeah. So I, I think, again, just like the other things I mentioned, that, that tends to be a relatively normal adaptation uh, in, in a throwing shoulder that can become symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And I agree exactly what you said. So the, the more external rotation they get into, the more likely they are to be symptomatic. The larger ones uh, are more likely to be symptomatic. I think they are there commonly in our throwers if we look for them, mm -hmm. but, I, but they rarely cause symptoms. Yeah. So, so for me, when I, when I see that, it's going to be the same thing. If I, if I think, well, you know, you, 
you can, yeah, you're fine up to 180 feet, but beyond that, you start to have trouble to say, well, what, what happens if you don't? What if you just long toss to 180? Yep. Can you get yourself in shape to be where you need to be? If so, let's do that. Mm-hmm. If, if not, then we may consider going in and, and trimming that down. Yeah. And is the concern also that, you know, if you leave it alone for too long, that you get more rotator cuff pathology, or is it just mm-hmm. the symptoms will always tell you what you need to know? Usually the symptoms will guide you. So if, if you, if the, if the player ignores pain and tries to throw through it, then what will happen is they'll start to alter their shoulder mechanics. And you're right. So the, the, the humeral head will translate on the glenoid to try to avoid hitting that Bennett's lesion yep. in the back, which then puts stress on the capsule and the rotator cuff and will give them other problems. Yep. So I think it's very critical that they know, you know, if there is pain, you have to pay attention to it. Otherwise, you're going to start changing your mechanics and you're going to cause other problems. On. All right, so I, I warmed you up with a somewhat easy one, and now I'm going to open the big can of worms on you. Um, mm-hmm. The biceps tendon. It's a it's a heavily mm-hmm. debated topic in the world of managing throwers. I actually got thrown into this myself. I had I had Kurt Schilling at the end of his career. He was the first uh, biceps tendonesis in major league history, 08, 09. So I had to jump mm-hmm. into this like crazy. And we, we got some preliminary research back then, but it was all about um, how we can use a tendonesis uh, to help out people in the general population who have had failed slap right. repairs because they reattached the degenerative biceps tendon and, and the, the outcomes were phenomenal in that population mm-hmm. because unfortunately they didn't throw baseballs for a living. Um, right. So, you know, I think we've seen classic slap repairs that may fail because of the tendon quality where restoring the normal anatomy isn't an option. Where do you stand on that? We have tendonitis mm-hmm. as an option. There is, you know, traditional, there's subpectoral, and now we have a biceps mm-hmm. transfer surgery. What mm-hmm. have you, what have you utilized? What outcomes have you seen? Where's your head at on all of that? Yeah. So you're exactly right. You know, initially the slap repairs uh, the, are the superior label tears. And, and just to back up too, for yeah. those that don't have a medical background, your yeah, some, sure. biceps tendon comes up and inserts on the superior labrum uh, in the shoulder. So we, we've gone away from thinking of these as either a slap or superior labral tear or a biceps tendon problem. And in reality, I think it's better for us mentally to call these biceps labral complex injuries. Mm-hmm. It really is sort of one continuous structure. And I think that we fall short of understanding it if we don't recognize that. Mm-hmm. So we, we've moved more towards that terminology, biceps labral complex injuries. And then the question is figuring out where along that complex the injuries occurred. Is it just biceps tendon? Is it at the junction of the two or is it more superior labrum? And historically, labral repairs, superior labral repairs did reasonably well in most patients other than pitchers. Success rates for that surgery for pitchers fell somewhere in the 60 to 70% range. Generally, you know, we like to be above 90%. So obviously there was concern, slap repairs were not good for pitchers. So then we thought, well, if we just release the biceps and then fix it, that takes the stress off the superior labrum. and we can leave the superior labrum alone, maybe that'll be a better option. Well, and, and you're exactly right. In the general population, the success rate of that is, you know, greater than 95%. It's a home run surgery. The problem is in professional pitchers, the success rate for that is around 20% or maybe even worse. Mm-hmm. So it is very concerning. Now, when talking about this, we sort of, we, we have to separate not only the general population from pitchers, but also position players from pitchers. Position players ten, and, and softball players tend to do much better with superior labral repairs or biceps tenodesis uh, surgeries. Mm-hmm. It's really the, the baseball pitcher is the one that struggles. So 
in the general population, we've moved more towards biceps tenodesis because it's a faster recovery, higher success rate compared to superior labral tears. That has not been the case in pitchers. Mm -hmm. So for me, again, just like I mentioned for other shoulder injuries, try to do everything we can to avoid surgery that usually involves, you know, rest, modifying activities, modifying mechanics, optimizing everything that we can do in the kinetic chain, uh, rehab, injections, all of those sort of things. If that fails in a pitcher and the injury is isolated to the superior labrum, then I would prefer a superior labral repair. If it's isolated to the biceps, then a biceps tenodesis. If it is junctional, sort of at that biceps labral junction, then I tend to err towards a superior labral repair in a pitcher, not in the rest of the population, but in a pitcher. And the difference in the success rates there is probably 60-ish, 60 to 70% for the superior labral repair versus 20% for the biceps tenodesis. So that's why I err on that side. I know one of the concerns with uh, the tenodesis in, in people who are candidates for it was the, the risk of, of shaft, uh, humeral shaft fractures with mm -hmm. you know, the torsional stress and uh, you know, yes. because they're, they're, they're basically putting that tendon right in a place where it could make you vulnerable. And that was one mm -hmm. of the rationales for um, you know, effectively going to a biceps transfer, which is a newer surgery. I think I've seen two um, you know, over mm -hmm. the last three to four years, have you had any experience with it? Do you see that as maybe a next frontier where effectively we're giving them two short heads of the bicep? Yeah, I, I have seen that quite a bit. And I work, uh, Steve O'Brien in yeah. New York is, is one of the surgeons who sort of pioneered that. And yep. I had the, uh, fortunate experience to, to spend a couple of years with him when I was training. So mm -hmm. I, I've seen the surgery I've seen, seen a lot of, and I, and I think that it is a, is a great option. One of the other things, though, as, as that as he was developing that as that was coming out, one of the other things that had happened, similar to what I mentioned for the elbow, is that our technology in our anchors and fixation devices have also improved dramatically. Mm -hmm. So the, the previous concern with the fractures in the humerus tended to occur when people were putting large holes and large anchors in the humerus to fix the biceps. Mm -hmm. so some of these were seven, eight, nine millimeters in diameter, which is a fairly large hole. Uh, in a bone. Now we have moved to much smaller anchors that still give us robust fixation. Okay. So generally speaking, now some of the anchors we use are on the magnitude of one to three millimeters in size. So it has dramatically reduced the size of the hole that you have to make in the humerus. Um, so for that reason, I think that it's um, the, the transfer, although is valuable, I do think doing a, a standard tenodesis is is a reliable option now because we're able to make such a much smaller hole has a less less likely risk of fracture. I think the other thing that I that I think about with that that is maybe an intriguing discussion point is you're anytime you're you know you're you're fundamentally changing anatomy even more significantly when you shift it over onto that coracoid mm -hmm. process. Um, I actually mm -hmm. saw an athlete, believe it or not, who had a biceps transfer. And then years later, had a thoracic outlet surgery with a pec minor release. So you almost have mm. to wonder, did that extra short head of the biceps pull him into a little bit more anterior tilt that subsequently had to be released in a different avenue? So we're, um, sure. we're, we're playing with, uh, with what God gave him, and it, it makes things right. interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I, I, you know, and this is shifting gears a little bit, maybe going back to the discussion of shoulder injuries going down as elbows go up, but you've done some really good descriptive research that focused on the concept of regional interdependence, i.e., mm -hmm. you know, stiffness, you know, at one joint can create, uh, you know, accessory motion that's excessive at an adjacent joint. Um, you know, I said some of these examples in 2018, you looked at preseason limitations to hip internal rotation, and they were associated with an increased risk of low back and abdominal injuries in professional players. 
in the season that follows. And then 2017, which honestly, one of the most important studies I think we've seen in recent baseball research, you, you and your group reported that limited shoulder flexion and shoulder external rotation were associated with a, a significant risk in elbow injury. I think it was a 2.83 times increased risk of injury to the elbow in the season that followed if you had more than a five degree shoulder deficit as compared to the other side. That study also demonstrated that maybe glenohumeral internal rotation deficit isn't as significant as, as maybe we've discussed over the years. So, you know, all this data in mind, what range of motion measurements are the ones that, you know, you place the most value on when a, you know, 18 mm-hmm. year old kid with shoulder or elbow pain comes into you? Um, are there any, you know, things that you haven't formally researched that you have, you know, speculation yeah. in your mind have big implications for keeping throwers healthy? Right. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, I learned a lot from doing both those two studies that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And in reality, we were doing those studies sort of looking for causes for elbow injury. Yeah. And we I had anticipated or hypothesized that for that first study in 2017, that reduced shoulder motion would increase the risk for both shoulder and elbow injuries. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case. It actually had no effect on shoulder injuries. It just did just had an effect on elbow injuries. So it was almost sort of that kind of next link in the chain, as you mentioned. So what we have found is that it it does seem as though it doesn't necessarily affect that joint itself, but can have implications on the subsequent joint. So that has sort of allowed me to kind of rethink how we approach this and that anytime I'm seeing somebody with an elbow injury, yeah, you want to look at the elbow, but you need to go back one joint as well, at least one joint, if not not more. Um, So anytime we have an elbow injury, I also want to look at the shoulder. And I and I think you're right. We paid a lot. We paid a lot of attention to GERD uh, and internal rotation deficits in years previous. But ultimately, I think what we find, if you, if you take all of the literature that's been published on that in summation, it's very clear that it's not as simple as GERD. So some of the studies have shown GERD's a factor. Some have shown that it's not. It's certainly more complex than that. Yeah. And generally speaking, it seems that if if a player has internal rotation deficit, but they have the increased external rotation to make up for that and they've maintained their total arc of motion, mm-hmm. they may not be at as big a risk for injury. So it, it's probably more that total arc of motion that matters rather than just the internal rotation deficit. Because simply what, what these pitchers end up doing is they basically hopefully can keep the same motion. They just shift it externally. They, they just sort of shift the whole range. And some of that comes from normal adaptation over the years. You, you can get humeral torsion, a rotation of the humerus that develops in in the bone itself if they're if they throw a lot when they're young that is not going to be able to be corrected by stretching and so i think it's important to recognize that that it's not all about gird and it's not all about sleeper stretches that there's more to it yeah. so for me to answer your question more specifically i think the most important things to look at it in the shoulder are is total motion mm-hmm. and then also two things that i think are underappreciated is simple forward flexion we, we've shown that lack of forward flexion um, can can cause injuries. And then I think horizontal adduction across the body is also important, too, which may be a, a better marker for uh, posterior capsular tightness than internal rotation. So for me, it's, it's a total motion forward flexion and cross body adduction, which I think are very, very important. I think we're, the unifying trend with, you know, limited shoulder flexion, limited external rotation is is extensibility of, of lat. Right. So it, right as we're seeing mm-hmm. more and more athletes you know, tear lats slash Terry's majors. We're also seeing more thoracic outlet, you know, which could be related to like a, a large muscle, like a lat having a, a gross depressive 
impact on the entire shoulder girdle, p- pulling that clavicle down indirectly through the scapula. I think it, it comes back to like, if we can get good extensibility through the lat, we can probably get cleaner flexion and external rotation. And we, we probably get what we would consider like a true uh, shoulder external rotation, an, a- an actual layback as opposed to asking that hinge joint to, to pick up the stress with, with more valgus. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And, and really what you're highlighting here is that it isn't just one measure or one muscle. I mean, yeah. t- to function at the level that our athletes desire, we, we need to optimize everything. It's just yeah. like a race car. You know, yeah. you, you, you've got to have everything tuned up. Your oil has to be changed. You've got to run the best gas. You know, you, you, I mean, everything has to be perfect for optimal function. What, what are some areas where you think we need to look more? Like, is there, you know, I, you mentioned the things that keep you up at night. I know I, I have things at 3 a.m. I stare off into blackness thinking about, are there any measures that you think are the next frontier? Yeah. In terms of, in terms of motion. Yeah. You know, I think part of, part of it is turning our attention down to lower segments in the chain. Yeah. You know, we, we spend a lot of time studying motion in the, in the shoulder, which we now know is important to all of these different motions. But I, I think next is looking at lumbar mobility, hip mobility, um, and even, you know, knee, knee biomechanics and those sort of things, I think all contribute. You know, we found in, in the study, the 2018 study you mentioned, we were looking at uh, decrease at hip rotation because we thought that that might have some implications for elbow injuries, but it, it turned out that it was more strongly correlated with low back and abdominal injuries, which we know are rampant in professional baseball. It, it's such a rotational sport for both throwers and hitters, and if they're not getting that rotation through the hip, all of that you know that whatever force and energy it doesn't come through the hips goes through the core core musculature in the low back and then and then they're at high risk for injury there too so we we have to not just have tunnel vision on the shoulder and elbow we've got to look at the rest of the of the chain as well i think you even uh, you know in your research you also hint at you know that it's a it's a hackneyed expression that our, our staff calls it a cressyism but small hinges swing big doors in that in that study that where you um you looked at preseason shoulder range of motion, uh, the risk of elbow injury increased by 7% for each degree of increased shoulder external rotation deficit. So we're dealing with a scenario like that. That shoulder is a very you know tightly controlled joint, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. believe that impingement is a physiological norm. So you know every degree matters for for a lot of these athletes, and I think that's a good lesson for you know not just the you know the the folks in your world who are diagnosing, but also the the clinicians who are doing these assessments. It's important not just to be you know accurate, but it's also important to be reliable so that you can look at the same athlete six months apart and and really differentiate whether things are changing. Right, and and be, and for those re I agree, Eric, and, and for those reasons, we also have to be precise in our measurements too, and what we're talking about. You know, so these need to be better than just estimates. You know, we we really need to pay pay attention to these measurements, try to do them well, do them accurately, be consistent so you can make some meaningful changes and you can measure that change. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is an important consideration as well is, you know, all these numbers that we've talked about, these are very osteokinematic in nature, right? We're talking about shoulder flexion and internal external rotation. There's a large arthrokinematic aspect of this is that we can't just look at range of motion we have to understand how strength, proprioceptive capability, these things allow us to, you know, control a joint like the shoulder, which is, is controlled mm-hmm. in such a tight window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious now. So uh, what, what, what's in the pipeline for you now? I know you're, you're super active. Uh, the list goes very, very long on PubMed when you, when you search by your last name. Um, what are you looking at next um, in, in your research endeavors? Yeah, a few things. So one, one of the things, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're still sort of 
optimizing surgical technique for Tommy John, which which is something that I'm really excited about. And we've had some very great uh, initial success with a new technique that we're still studying. So that one's near and dear to my heart right now. We'll see how that goes over the next year or two. The next big thing that, that I'm really interested in looking at is individualizing the rehabilitation process. Mm-hmm. Right right now we have, you know, there, there are a lot of great throwing programs and protocols out there. Um, and, and to the best that we can, we have based these on data and evidence. But the problem is most of them sort of have a one size fits all approach. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we now have enough information and data that we can be smarter than that, that, that we don't have to have every thrower doing the same thing and trying to progress through the same program. Yep. And in reality, all of our throwers, they're built differently. Their mechanics are different. Their goals are different. And so for those reasons, we really need to start individualizing things. And it, it doesn't make sense if, if you've got a, a high school pitcher who had Tommy John, who, who maybe, let's say, is throwing 82 um, and their goal is to throw 60 innings a year. Um, rehabbing with a professional uh, next next to a professional player who's throwing 98 and their their goal is you know 200 innings a year should those two throwers be on the same throwing program i mean the obvious answer is no um but how do how do we individualize it? and so i think what we need to do is understand individual mechanics individual forces in our throwers and can and can tailor a program to them because we we want to accelerate them through a program as fast as we can without causing undue stress to the ligament or whatever it was that was fixed and there may be some throwers who are so efficient in their mechanics that that the ligament or shoulder or whatever it is sees very little stress whereas others who have poor mechanics for whatever reason are seeing an excessive amount of stress well, we should not penalize that efficient thrower by holding them back to the average throwing program. And we should not put the inefficient thrower at risk by trying to make them do something that their body's not designed to do. So we need to individualize that so each each can sort of advance through that program at a pace that is more appropriate for them. That's outstanding stuff. All right. So we have, uh, we've taken enough of your time today. This was outstanding. I actually have a page of notes written right here. I learned a bunch and I'm sure that a, a lot of the folks out there, you know, from, from all walks of life have as well. Where, where can folks learn more about you, Christopher? Yeah. Uh, great question. So, you know, feel free. You obviously you can look up some of the research that we've done on PubMed. And then also, uh, you know, I, I work at the Mayo Clinic, um, which, which is where I see patients and do surgery and our website is uh, sportsmedicine.mayoclinic.org. So feel free to, to take a look on there. And some of the stuff we talked about is on there, plus a lot of other stuff. So you can see our team and and, and there are different ways, our contact information and uh, everything. If you need to reach out or make appointments is all available there. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a shout out. Your Twitter account is outstanding. It's at ChrisCampMD. <laughs> and you are, no, seriously, it's a it's an excellent source for, um, you know, up-to-date research, you know, in, in the throwing community and beyond. So um, it's a, that's an excellent follow for a lot of the sports medicine folks out here who want to stay on top of stuff. So um, we really appreciate you taking the time. This was, this was outstanding. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Eric. I appreciate it. You've given me more motivation. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. So if, uh, <laughs> if, if you find it's helpful and you like it, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll keep going. So I'll keep trying to add good stuff for, for the world out there. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. We appreciate it. And thanks so much for coming on, Christopher. You got it, Eric. Right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast 
and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.